Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I want to continue talking about a topic that I've been thinking about in the last few months or so, just for a variety of reasons, and that is the question of self-ownership as it relates to the Christian libertarian. Now, I sort of joked one time, I think it was on the Bob Murphy show, that this is the kind of question that's like, for Christian libertarians, this is the who will build the roads question for libertarians. And so I have Kerry Baldwin on here with me to talk about this important question because I know a lot of Christians have this question, even Christian libertarians who already kind of agree with the tenets of libertarianism, but they still kind of struggle with this idea of self-ownership because it just sounds so contradictory or feels contradictory to what we know about our relationship with God and God's relationship with God's creation. So Carrie, I think you can help us untangle some of this mess. You think you can help me out here? (laughs) I'll certainly try. (laughs) Thanks for joining me here because I think you offer a good perspective and a good angle on this and it just kind of sheds more light than it would if it were just me talking. Sure. Yeah, so I guess I've come across this concept quite a bit and I had even written about it way back when I started my blog, way back in 2012. And I've since come to realize that there are a handful of category errors that are made when it comes to Christian objections to the concept of self-ownership. And I guess I'll lay out what I think, broadly speaking, those category errors are, and then we can talk about them. The first category error, I think, has to do with the idea of metaphysical libertarianism. And this is a question of a philosophical question of free will versus determinism. So where we as libertarians, when we're talking in a political sense, a political philosophical sense, we're speaking just about human choice, human action, you know, making decisions, choosing apples over oranges, left versus right, making risk assessments, things like this. The metaphysical concept of libertarianism is that you are completely free and autonomous from God or, you know, any laws in the cosmos or anything like that. If you wanted to take a, you know, an atheistic approach to that, determinism is the idea that everything's already decided, predetermined, even your choices and actions were were predetermined either by the cosmos or by God. And so that's that's the first category error is whether it's metaphysical libertarianism or political libertarianism and whether there's a relationship between the two. The second category error I would say has to do with the concept of individualism. Many people, many critics would say that self-ownership is atomistic libertarianism, which is just the idea that the most basic unit of society is the individual and that it's the individual that's paramount and the individual at the expense of the community, that sort of thing. And then I'd say the third category error has more to do with ethics. You know, this 
libertinism, do we have an ethical code that we follow? Is that already, you know, pre-established in some way, or are we making up the rules as we go? Or do we get to disclaim responsibility for our actions and that sort of thing? So I'd say those are those are the three category errors, the metaphysical, the atomistic individualism, and then the the ethical errors. So when a Christian objects to the concept of owning ourselves, are they operating under the metaphysical libertarianism? Like, well, no, God owns you? Yeah, so this comes from the Bible verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, which say, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. And this is in the context of sexual morality, you know, how we're supposed to treat our bodies in sexual relationships. And the follow-up sentence, even in that first, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. The follow-up sentence is, so glorify God in your body. So yeah, the people who would say, well, that verse is, you know, falsifying this idea that Christians can own themselves. It says explicitly, you do not own yourself. Mm. And what we would say as Christian libertarians is, yes, we affirm that passage. God does indeed own us. He owns us and all things. But God has also given us life. God has also given us you know, a moral code, which gets into the ethics issue. And God has said we're accountable to those things. God holds us accountable for, for our actions. He could not hold us accountable for our actions if we didn't have a freedom to choose. And I would just say this can be founded way back at creation in the garden when God creates Adam and Eve as image bearers of God and gives them the choice of whether or not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, when he gives them that choice, he's not saying you're free to choose without consequence. He's saying, don't eat of it or you're going to die. But he leaves the tree there and allows for the possibility of them making the wrong choice. So I would say it goes all the way back to the garden where, yes, God gives us life. God gives us an ethical code. God holds us accountable, but we still have a free choice. And that free choice doesn't negate God's ownership over us. It, in fact, makes us accountable for our actions and for obeying him. Yeah. It reminds me of the way that someone might say that you need to own something, like you need to own your mistake mm-hmm. or own something that you've sort of, I guess, been given. And in that, in that sense, it's sort of like God is telling us to own our responsibility as humans to make right choices. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that's sort of the way ownership kind of comes down in my mind is that that's what I own. It's that autonomy. It's that free will. It's that responsibility to do what is right or just even just the option to do what is right. Well, even, I mean, the word ownership, I think it's Robert Murphy who, <laughs> I'm thinking about this because of, my courses, because we go over the definition of ownership. And ownership is just the power to make decisions with essentially your stuff, right? You can't make decisions about other people's stuff. And one of the things that you can make decisions about is your own body. And throughout all of scripture, we have calls from God to steward our own lives and our, our own money, our own wealth, 
our own possessions. We're called to steward those things. You can't steward things if you can't take action. You can't steward things if you can't think through and make decisions about them. So while I wouldn't use the word autonomy just for the sake of ensuring this distinction between political libertarianism and metaphysical libertarianism is clear, I would say we have indeed been given a stewardship and entailed in that as image bearers of God is the power and authority to make decisions about ourselves. And that also involves the ability to make wrong decisions. Right. So let me let me apply that a little bit here in our modern context. You're saying that because we've been given this ownership over ourselves or over our bodies, because there's no other way for us to act if we can't control what we do, that we can still claim as Christians to another person, even a non-Christian, we can say to them, we believe that God owns everything. We believe that God owns you in that sort of sense. But we also can affirm that God has given them the ownership to make those choices and that the fact that those choices will have some consequence either way. It basically means that we're saying that the concept of ownership exists rightly for the individual because the choices are not taken away. In other words, the tree was still left in the garden for there to be a choice, right? And so Mm -hmm. the community can't say to this person, you don't own yourself because we've decided to make you eat this fruit or make you not eat this fruit or make you take this vaccine or whatever it might be. Like the community Mm -hmm. can't say to, to the individual, you don't own yourself. You don't have a choice. Yeah. That was a convoluted way of saying what I was trying to get to, but maybe you can summarize it better. (laughs) I I think I understand what you're saying. And I think I really appreciate a particular, I guess I would call it a a thinking tool or philosophical tool from neo-Calvinism, which is the concept of structure and direction. So structure is essentially the laws of the created order, right? The structure of the cosmos. And entailed in the structure of the cosmos are, you know, these physical laws that you can't break, like the law of gravity. And then you have other laws that you can break, but you're wrong to break, like stealing. So that's structure. And everything that's created, there's this structural element to it. Then you have the directional element. And so whatever the directional element is either in conformity to God's abiding moral will or it's deviating from God's abiding moral will. And so if we're operating within this structure of reality, right, and we're having to make a decision about whether or not to, let's say, eat a piece of cake, it might be in conformity because you own the cake and, you know, all other things being equal, right? You're not like gorging yourself on the cake. But if you own that cake, then you can have that piece of cake. But you would be deviating from God's abiding moral will by stealing that piece of cake, right? So the decision exists. You're able to make that decision. You're able to make that choice. That's part of the structure. Whether or not it's in conformity to or deviating from God's abiding moral will is where the ethics comes into it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. And I know someone I'm fond of, Brian Zahn, he talks about the grain of the universe. And if you go against it, you will be harmed, <laughs> like if you think of it <laughs> yeah. as a fabric. So I'm probably misquoting what he says there, but it's not grain of the universe, but it's more like 
God ordains that the universe runs in the form of love. And if you run against that, then it will be harmful to you and to others. That's a paraphrase. Others can go listen to him, you know, speak about that. But it kind of reminds me in the same way. It's like there's those two ways of thinking. I want to go back to something when you quoted, was it 1 Corinthians 6? Mm-hmm. About being bought with a price. And it seems to me that that's not talking about... We quickly jump from that verse saying, you are not your own. And then we jump into Genesis. And I think that's where it's like, oh, but God created you, so you're not your own. But the passage says that you were bought with a price, which seems to me to speak more to... Christians with atonement. Yeah, so the you were bought with a price aspect is definitely about atonement. There are also scripture verses that talk about, you know, if you're not owned by God or Christ, then you're owned by the devil. So those are the two options mm-hmm. if you're talking in this spiritual religious sense, right? Yeah. So okay. the directional sense as opposed to the structural sense. Yeah. So you are not your own. That's the directional sense. You're bought with a price that has everything to do with atonement and salvation. But then you have the following phrase, so glorify God in your body. Well, that's a command. And if we're given a command, we have to be able to obey that command. But we also know that we can deviate from that command and disobey it, right? Mm -hmm. That's where the choice comes in. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. And the point I wanted to highlight there is that this verse does not point necessarily to a defense of sort of Lockean ownership. Mm-hmm. Like in the in the, you know, the modern philosophical sense of like owning something in the like homesteading kind of way. Like when I was on Bob Murphy's show with Dick Clark, we were talking about this whole concept of self-ownership. And he was saying that basically since God is the creator, God homesteaded and therefore owns us. And I'm not sure I find that anywhere in scripture that like Not that I can't find a scripture that God created us, but like that's a sort of anachronistic way of looking at property rights in Mm -hmm. that we look at the world that God created as if God was, you know, acting within a Lockean framework of making something. (laughs) And it's like, oh, that's a little backwards. So like we can't use any Bible verse to sort of contradict that because it's not even, it's not even something that's within the, it's, it almost like it flips categories a little bit. Yeah. Colossians 1 speaks specifically about how all things, absolutely everything that is created, holds together in Christ. So I would say God's ownership, I mean, we're using a finite term there, so it's not even an adequate term for God's relationship to us. But that ownership has to do with the fact that everything in the created order depends on God. In other words, our existence is completely dependent on on God. We are finite. He is infinite. Now, I believe we can say God created the idea of ownership, right? That's a created idea. And we can, as image bearers of God, own things in a finite way as reflections of his image. But I'd say that's a created concept. But the reason why God can make the claim of ownership to begin with is because everything that's created depends solely and completely on him. Okay, I can go with that. I mean, that that sounds glib. I don't, I don't mean it that way, but it's like, that's a really good explanation of why you can sort of make that claim. So yeah. that's good. Do we want to talk about atomistic and libertarianism 
and individualism and the sort of misunderstandings that people have about what we mean when we talk about individualism? Yeah, so, you know, this idea of atomistic individualism is that, you know, you are completely isolated from everybody, right? You are wholly and completely responsible for you. Nobody should help you out. You should not help anybody else out. It comes from the philosophy of atomism, which is just, strictly speaking, the idea that the most basic fundamental unit of everything are atoms and that we're just we're just a collection of atoms, right? So communities are just a collection of individuals. And I would say inherent, especially when you get into economics, in economics, we acknowledge that we need each other, that we are not completely and totally self-sufficient of ourselves. That's not even the goal, right? Because we can't even achieve that level of knowledge and skill and isolation and still survive. The whole idea of trade and specialization, of skills and knowledge and, you know, all these things that that we talk about in libertarianism necessitates cooperation and community. So I like to say that we are individuals living in community. We're neither individualists nor collectivists. Gregory Baus has pointed out we're methodological individualists just insofar as human action is concerned. So we believe that only humans act. But that's much different than this idea that, you know, any society or community is just a collection of individuals. So what I like to say is we're neither individualistic nor collectivist, right? We are individuals living in community. So both are true. Not the isms, but the fact that individuals live in community, right? Gregory Baus has pointed out that we are methodological individualists insofar as we believe that only human beings take action, make choices, so groups don't act. But as far as societal individualism or societal collectivism, we would reject both. Because as I said before, we're individuals living in community. There are facts about us as individuals with regard to our individual rights, but also with regard to our individual choice and action. But we aren't, you know, we're not foolish enough to think that our choices and our actions don't have any effect on on other human beings. We absolutely acknowledge this, which is why we have the non-aggression principle and this idea of voluntary cooperation and trade and specialization and all of these other things. We acknowledge that we live in a community and that we need each other. Hi, this is Dr. Norman Horn. And if you like the Libertarian Christian podcast, then you'll definitely like our other podcast, Good News, Bad News, a roundtable where you can join me, Matt, Carrie, Doug, Aaron, and others as we analyze the news from a Libertarian Christian perspective. Check us out on YouTube, your favorite podcast app, or on libertarianchristians.com slash roundtable. I kind of wonder if people don't like the idea of self-ownership because it gives them no claim over someone else. Like we live in a world where there is no live and let live philosophy as a world. I mean, like broader American culture where everybody 
want a claim on what other people are doing. And maybe not a claim on what they're doing, but like they need to have a say in the judgment of what they're doing. So like I remember when I was growing up that the sort of non-Christian response to Christians was, well, didn't Jesus say don't judge? Mm -hmm. You know? And now we kind of say, well, Jesus says don't judge. But I don't think people really want to follow that anymore. They want to have a say in judging you and me and what we do and how we say things. They want to judge somebody like Dave Chappelle. They want to judge what a politician says. They want to judge what someone tweets. They want to judge. And they not only do they want to judge, they want to judge harshly. And so they want to claim over other people's lives. And I wonder if the spirit of sort of anti-self-ownership, if you will, is not really a claim about, well, the right theological argument is that God owns you and you don't own yourself, but it's more like, I want to be able to tell you what to do. I want to be able to sort of have a vote, so to speak, into how you serve me as a member of the community. Yeah, I would say that's the authoritarian impulse, if I can borrow from Al Mohler's libertarian impulse quips. (laughs) (laughs) This is the idea. I think this comes from a couple of points of view. First of all, is this idea that the point of civil governance is to legislate morality, right? Libertarians don't have this concept of legislating morality. The things that we make laws about have to do with rights violations. They're limited to that. And we're not saying that morality, aside from rights violations, is a non-issue. We're just saying that falls under a different sphere, right? That falls under the sphere of you know, ethical philosophy or religious belief or, you know, the church, that sort of thing, where we would say, yes, it's unethical to violate somebody's rights. We would say that the civil sphere is strictly limited to adjudicating those disputes. Whereas everybody else or those people who are anti-libertarian have this authoritarian impulse. They think, number one, the point of government is to punish the immoral, not just evildoers, but punish the immoral. And we also have this idea it's a democracy, so we all get to have a say in how things work. And so if a majority of people want the entire community or the entire population to be vaccinated, then by golly, that's just. And I just think that that comes from, one, the the authoritarian impulse, and two, the erroneous view that democracy is the best form of government that we've got. And I have noticed, and I don't know why this is, but it really gets under my skin. The people who criticize libertarianism almost never engage with libertarian thinkers on their own terms. And it irritates me because like when I took, when I was taking philosophy, one of the rules that that we were taught was you paint your opponent in the best light possible, not just because that's charitable, but because it does you no good to argue against, you know, their worst argument. And so I find people who are critical of libertarianism will take the absolute weakest link and fight that and make that the big deal. You know, they'll misunderstand the concept of self-ownership as being, you know, autonomy from God entirely right? Or they take the non-aggression principle as strictly pacifist. Yeah, That's not charitable. And it doesn't do them 
any good except to maintain the divide, right? There's no productive dialogue towards mutually beneficial ends. Well, and one way that people can often do that is by not seeing the nuance in an argument. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're unable to because your your mind hasn't sort of completely wrapped itself around what the argument is. And so sometimes that's just not possible for certain humans, mm-hmm. at least in how they're processing it. But over time, you should get better at it. But sort of ignoring nuance and seeing entirely in black and white where it's like, well, if you're saying this, then you must mean that. Mm-hmm. You know, and so when you hear someone say self-ownership, you're immediately triggered by, oh my goodness, they must think that we can live apart from God. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like yeah. we can't have that. So self-ownership, you know, it's out the window. Well, and that same sort of trigger happens with more leftist issues too. You know, they hear a term without even understanding the term and what is meant by the term and fly off the handle. And even if it's in an intellectual way, right, maybe it sounds like they're really attacking it in a smart way rather than an emotional way. But if they're not going to engage with the thinkers who have worked this stuff out, I mean, for crying out loud, when Rothbard talks about self-ownership, he's deriving this from natural law theory. And natural law theory is very, very compatible with Christianity. And it's not metaphysical autonomy or anything like that. It's not in line with that. So, you know, you'll certainly get libertarians who are probably also metaphysically libertarian. I think Robert Nozick considered himself a metaphysical libertarian, which doesn't help since Nozick's book is the one that's offered as the quintessential libertarian explanation for political philosophy 101 classes. But at any rate, yeah, I would say that what what you've described as, you know, people wanting to have a claim over over other people, that's the authoritarian impulse, yeah. which I would even go as far as to say is anti-Christian. I don't think that of authoritarianism course. is founded in the Bible at all. Yeah. Well, and on the flip side of this idea, it's not that we we obviously want to say that you don't have a claim over what someone else does, but it's also not the opposite, which is a license for like, yeah, go ahead and do whatever you want. Right. Right. Like if we if somehow everybody acknowledged, oh yeah, we all own ourselves, that's not a recipe for libertinism. I mean, that's right. not what we're advocating. Yeah. I would even take it as far as to say, if we own ourselves and we also have a concept of civil justice, which we do, that necessitates an anti-libertine position, right? And the non-aggression principle is you own yourself, therefore, you know, you cannot initiate violence or I own myself, therefore you cannot initiate violence against me and vice versa, right? The nap is the other side of the self-ownership coin. And so it's never apart from our responsibility to other people. It's almost like there's like a built-in accountability in that concept, (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, the built-in accountability is at least insofar as, you know, if I wrong you and you aren't able to achieve civil justice for that, I'm definitely accountable to God for that. Like you don't, you don't get away from that. So even if you don't get justice from me in this life. Yeah. Well, I often wonder what rubric do people say that some sort of rights violation or I guess maybe they wouldn't put it this way. Like I'm thinking somewhat of critical race theorists right now with respect to justice. It's like, well, if it's wrong for 
me to own a slave. Why? Like, what's the reason why? Is it because the slave owns himself and I don't? Because that, to me, that's end of game, right? Like, that's the answer. Mm -hmm. But is it more like, oh, well, God said not to. Or, you know, there's these other, like, I don't even know, I can't wrap my mind around, maybe there's some so thoroughly an American liberal, and most people know what I mean when I say that, as in, you know, liberal, as in libertarian liberal, that I just think in terms of rights, like, I can't do that to you. You are not mine, and I'm not going to, I'm going to go, I'm not going to, violate your self-ownership? Well, let me give you an example. It's not from critical theory, but it is from another hot topic right now, which is abuse. A couple of years ago, I was in a Facebook discussion that involved a pastor that I know. And I had pointed out, we were talking about abuse in scripture and how these you know categories pan out. And I had made an argument that certain kinds of abuse were rights violations. And he said, no, 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 no. This isn't political. We're not getting, this isn't about rights. I said, yes, it is. I have a right to say no, you know, and resist abuse because that's my right as an individual. You don't have a right to actually aggress against me in this sort of way. And so by my calling out, you know, maybe I'm calling out somebody's abuse to my pastor or whatever. By me doing that, I'm asserting my rights. And he said, no, 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 it, this has nothing to do with rights. He said, this is about love. When you call out an abuser, that's an act of love towards the abuser. And I thought that is exactly wrong. That's a wrong way to think about it. Because his reasoning was you're calling that person to the carpet. You're calling them out on their sin and calling them to repentance. And that's a loving thing to do. But when you're talking about an abusive situation, there's no situation in which the victim can actually express love to the abuser. But that victim most definitely has had their rights violated and needs justice for that. So I think that Part, so the claim of rights was not enough to... I don't think they like the claim of rights because when we talk about rights, we, we are also talking about the ability to choose wrong, right? So there was also a very old article that I wrote that the right to choose doesn't mean that you're right in your choice, right? Yeah. We had a right to... We, Adam and Eve, were given a choice when it came to the tree in the garden. They were given a choice. It didn't mean that both choices, both options were right. One was right and one was wrong, but they were still free to choose the wrong one. There were consequences for So it. in the abuse situation there is that the victim, the abused, should love the abuser by calling them out. Yes. And that that's the basis for doing that rather than you're violating my rights, I'm calling you out. Yes. Well, that's... I don't know if those are in conflict, though. Are they? Like, uh, it is, I mean, it's loving to stop a shooter, right? Like, I mean, I guess it's more loving to stop a shooter non-lethally, like an active shooter situation, right? Or like in an abuse situation, like, wouldn't you say that it would be, I mean, I guess I can see why somebody would say that, but by saying, oh, we're going to think about it in terms of love versus in terms of rights is somewhat irrelevant because it has to stop in terms of justice, but like, I can see why the motivation for doing this is like, I'm a victim. The most loving thing to do is for my perpetrator to be caught to justice, right? 
so, because there's a chance of repentance, because there's a way for the, you know, whatever. Let me, let me put it this way. If the government is stealing from you, okay, taxes, do we have a fundamental right to resist that theft? Or do we have to, as Christians, do we have to over and above just asserting that they don't have a right to take our stuff? Do we have a duty to also compel the government to repent and turn away from the sin of theft? Because that's what love is. Love is, is over and above that. When you're a victim of a crime, are you in a place where you also, in addition to asserting your rights, you also have to go above and beyond and call that person to repentance? Or is that the job of somebody else? I think you could do both. I don't think you can. You don't, I think, don't we, think I mean, isn't that what we do when we say the government should stop stealing? I mean, isn't that the libertarian argument that the government should stop violating our rights because it's not loving or because, like, can't no, we... the, but as you said, the reason Maybe why. Maybe I'm mishearing we... what you're saying here. Yeah, you already said it. The reason why we assert our rights against the government is because they're violating our rights, because they're violating our, our property and our self ownership. Right. But isn't standing up and speaking truth to power and having the prophetic voice, yada, 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 isn't that loving our neighbor? In a way, it's like, look, we're calling the government to account. But we're not talking about loving our neighbor. We're talking about whether we're calling the IRS itself. This is a this is an organization, not individuals. Yeah, sure. But whether we're calling the IRS to repentance and spiritual salvation, that sort of thing. It's a different category. It's still a category error. Okay. A victim is not in a position to do both. A victim needs justice. And maybe once they get the justice, then, you know, there's room for an act of love. But that's above and beyond. Okay. I think I see where you are here on this. And again, I've not been in a position where I'm, I'm the victim in a way that needs to be acted. Like, I just need justice. I just need this to go away. I've, so maybe I can't quite perceive that. It's not my lived experience, as you and I were talking about off air yeah. <laughs> with respect to the way in which <laughs> critical race theorists deal with things. So I want to ask you this question because one of the topics you're known for talking about is women and abortion. And I think that a lot of conservative Christians, especially, or more specifically, anti-abortion Christians, pro-life Christians, would want to hear is a response to this kind of question where, wouldn't self-ownership, if we affirm the self-ownership, in this case of a woman, then we would have to concede then that it's her right to choose to have an abortion. We've talked about choosing the right thing. We've talked about rights. We've talked about you have a choice. And so that if you affirm this idea of self-ownership, then then you're immediately going to have to be pro-choice. Yeah, well, this is why I argue that the fetus has self-ownership from conception right? From the moment conception is complete, the fetus is a self-owner because our self-ownership is naturally limited by the self-ownership of others. So where I absolutely uphold the bodily autonomy and agency of the woman, that becomes naturally limited when a new self-owner is created inside her because now you are dealing with two self-owners. And my self-ownership is not more paramount than your self-ownership. So why should my self-ownership be more paramount than the fetus inside me, than their self-ownership? 
So now I will say that where I think a woman's bodily autonomy and agency applies after, you know, conception takes place has to do with how she plans to carry out that that pregnancy because you get in the in the OBGYN world today there's still a lot of medical paternalism and who gets to decide what sort of procedures a woman is going to do how she's going to actually deliver those sorts of questions should be left to the woman and granted she should take as much professional advice as she can grab a hold of but we still have this idea in our culture that a woman who is pregnant is in no state to be making decisions about her own body. And I think Mm -hmm. that's an error. So her bodily autonomy and agency still apply in pregnancy. It's just naturally limited to you can't kill your offspring, right? Yeah. So in general on this self-ownership topic, is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? I would say if you're a critic of self-ownership, there are more than enough resources out there that explain it. And maybe, Doug, we can put some of those links in the show notes. I would say it's not a convoluted topic. It's an axiom, which means, you know, it's a principle that's deduced from nature, from observing it in nature. We know it intuitively because we, we know that you can't murder, steal, or enslave. So if you feel like you're on the critical side of this, I would say, let's explore it. Be open to exploring it because it's not metaphysical libertarianism. There's no reason to believe that, you know, metaphysical libertarianism is the logical consequence of political libertarianism. These are just two, again, two different categories. There's no reason why we have to take an atomistic view of individualism. And there's definitely no reason to believe that self-ownership necessitates a libertine sort of society. Well, I think we've covered it all and no one should ever ask us this question again, right? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Listeners, I know that you sometimes want to reach out. You do reach out to us and, you know, we want to hear more from you. If you have further questions, we can answer them. We actually have another podcast called Good News, Bad News, where we assess and analyze the news of the day carries on that podcast. And so what we can also do is answer those questions there, which is actually probably a little bit better turnaround time if you wanted to hear us answer those because we do listener questions. So you can send us emails at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can find Carrie at mereliberty.com. And of course, we're all online. And uh, Carrie, thanks for joining me for this uh, fun conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.